if they do services only on women, that means all women. Right. That means if the person even identifies as women or right. the trans woman or is non-binary, right. then yes, they have to do the service. Right. However, if the person is like Justin Trudeau, yeah. I'm going to assume his gender here and I'm going to get yeah. crap for this, but let's, okay. let's say Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau walks yeah. in saying, hey, Donald, Tr my, my name is Donald Trump and I want to get my balls waxed. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand them refusing service. Yeah. Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce. Today I interviewed a lawyer who's working on the Yaniv case. Now, up in Canada, there's this person who is asserting their right to be a female-identified person and is complaining to the Human Rights Tribunal that estheticians, specifically independent estheticians who work out of home, don't want to wax their genitalia and that this is a form of discrimination. Now, that case, as you probably already know, is pretty salacious on the surface, but it's actually a manifestation of deeper problems with the law. And this interview with John Carplay details the underpinning conflict between two versions of what it means to be equal, a classical liberal version of equality that's based on the sovereignty of the individual versus a social justice version of equality, which is based on the equalization of outcomes and the government intrusion into the lives of individuals as they relate to one another. John Carplay talks about how these two forms of law are irreconcilable. And we also talk, of course, about the waxing testicles case. So here you go. So you want to tell us uh, just your qualifications and then what you're involved in now? Yes. So in this British Columbia human rights uh, cases filed by Yaniv against 14 women, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is a public interest law firm, a uh, libertarian pro-freedom law firm, we and our team of lawyers are representing five of these 14 women. And um, the lead lawyer is Jay Cameron. And uh, the other lawyers and myself are also, you know, have some involvement with the file. But uh, Jay Cameron's the man. Mm -hmm. And so he's been involved in this case for how long? And then when did you come on? We found out about the case in uh, September uh, no, in, in August of 2018, it was uh, kind of a, a friend of a friend. Uh, we we received this email about an esthetician who was greatly distressed because a human rights complaint had been filed against her. And, uh, she, you know, she was in a panic. Uh, she doesn't have money for a lawyer. She doesn't know what to do. Uh, she's afraid, so on and so forth. So we got in touch with this lady and represented her and as soon as Yaniv found out that she had legal representation, Yaniv withdrew the complaint. Uh, we advised the tribunal that we intended to uh, bring in expert evidence from uh, somebody that runs a waxing salon for men because the procedure is different and so on. And so Yaniv withdrew the complaint. And then there was a second female esthetician we represented as well in uh, August of 2018. And again, as soon as Yaniv found out that this lady had a lawyer, Yaniv withdrew the complaint. And then the Human Rights Tribunal got fed up with this uh, follow complaint and then withdraw it, uh, which Yaniv did a third time uh, on a case that we were not representing the woman. And the tribunal more or less said to Yaniv, you're not taking this seriously. So then we had three actual hearings in July of 2019. And uh, there... Yaniv put in 
uh, any of evidence and testimony and so on. And we had each of the three women at three different hearings on three different dates uh, go forward and explain that they don't feel comfortable handling uh, waxing male genitalia, and in some cases, religious objections, uh, safety and security objections, uh, and, and a lack of qualifications for being able to provide that service. Mm-hmm. So there's you, you brought up safety considerations, qualification uh considerations, religious considerations, and then uh, uncomfortableness considerations. Uh, so that's on the defendant's side. What is it about uh, Yaniv's case that is a human rights issue? The human rights legislation in the province of British Columbia uh, lists gender expression and gender identity as a prohibited ground of discrimination. So it's in the same category with uh, race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, uh, age, sexual orientation. It is uh, same category. So the idea is that one cannot deny a service or a product to uh, that is ordinarily available to the public to somebody on the basis of gender identity and gender expression. Now, the the legal basis, and I don't pretend to speak for Yaniv, but I'll try to characterize fairly what Yaniv's claim is, is that according to BC human rights law, uh, the waxing service is a service that is available to the public and that Yaniv, under the law, is a woman because Yaniv identifies as a woman and that's mm-hmm. Yaniv's gender expression and gender identity. So therefore, uh, these waxologists should be legally required to provide the waxing service to Yaniv's male genitalia mm-hmm. because Yaniv identifies as a woman. So all these different categories of identity are according to the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. They're all on equal ground. One doesn't trump the other, but we're in this case is about the tension between, well, what's the more fundamental human right who gets more protection. Well, Canadian courts never tire of saying that there is no hierarchy of rights. If you were to, you know, Google search a, a Canadian uh, judicial decisions database uh, for the phrase "no hierarchy of, of rights," the courts assert that all the time. But in practice, uh, because of the nature of, of human rights legislation and the way that it's structured, you do get into a situation where, for example, uh, two of our uh, clients were Sikhs. And in their religion, and I think other religions as well, uh, a woman is not permitted to touch any man other than her husband. And so if you have a a religious uh, question there, religious characteristic, uh, you have a human right to carry on business in your chosen field, whether doctor, lawyer, waxologist, esthetician, whatever, you should have a human right to practice whatever you want to practice. If you're a Jewish lawyer and you're observant, you don't practice law on Saturdays, that should be a human right. Hmm. Uh, but here you have a conflict with um, with women whose religion precludes them from having uh, any kind of intimate contact with a man. And then you've got, under law, Yaniv's human right uh, because of gender identity and gender expression being included. Uh, so on, on the face of it, under the law, Yaniv has a claim, and the Human Rights Tribunal has recognized that. In, in a preliminary ruling, the Human Rights Tribunal said uh, that uh, trans women have a right 
to gender-affirming care, including waxing. Which leads to compelled waxing, then. The, the law, under the letter of the law, they could force women under penalty of, of fines to touch male, uh, male biology. And that's, that, that is the practical consequence, the practical ramification. If Yaniv is successful in this case, it means that female aestheticians in British Columbia have uh, a choice of providing waxing Yaniv's male genitalia or facing a human rights complaint with the subsequent imposition of a fine that could be uh, $1,000, $500, $2,000, uh, it, but, and that doesn't count, of course, the whole ordeal of going through the human rights process, which is yeah. far, wor- far worse than having to write a check. I, I'm sorry for going here, but what if, what if somebody like Yaniv is deriving sexual gratification from this and then using the arm of the law in order to force women to appease uh, their sexual uh, proclivities? What if it's not about gender identity? It's just an umbrella term. Like, is that even thought of or it's it's a good question it's a fair question i don't think the human rights legislation when i when they drew it up they were probably just thinking of uh, a guy with a nice wig and makeup and female clothing going to a restaurant Mm -hmm. and not being turned away on the basis of of uh, gender expression that's probably what they had in mind and if if that was the case, Yaniv would very likely be successful if Yaniv was turned away from, say, a restaurant or a store uh, or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever service or something that Yaniv wanted to buy. Uh, the law doesn't, or in this case, the human rights legislation doesn't look at the you know potential motive of sexual gratification. But it's a live issue because, uh, and sorry to get a bit graphic here, but the the expert witness who testified at the human rights hearing on July the 4th Uh, is a woman who runs a waxing salon for men in Victoria, BC. And this lady testified that not only is the procedure, the waxing procedure for men is different, but she said that in some cases men get aroused and then ask for uh, sexual favors. And when the request for sexual favors is turned down by the salon staff, some of the men get angry and they get verbally abusive and they terrify the staff. Mm -hmm. So this is another real life issue that these female aestheticians would have to deal with many of them working from home yeah. is the possibility of somebody getting aroused and asking for sex and if turned down getting becoming angry or verbally abusive it's not impossible that's very and much if we're speaking about a home then also there could be kids around too so this is like again that goes back to the safety issue well, many many of the fourteen women were uh, were working from home, and in some of those cases, they had small children present, and their their husband was away. And it's just unconscionable for for the law to require a woman. And I would take this further to like a piano teacher that doesn't want uh, you know, male clients or whatever. If a woman is working from home alone, that's a very different context from say a salon where you've got you know, a half dozen people, possibly some of them men. Uh, if you're in a salon type situation and you've got colleagues around you, then in a worst case scenario, if there's a problem, you can call security or phone the police. But yeah. from a woman working f- uh, from home, it's just unconscionable that the law would require her to have as a client somebody with male genitalia, regardless of how that person might identify. Mm-hmm. So 
it seems like if there's a tension in this law, then it's in somehow making more granular uh, the the protections awarded to various identities. It seems to me that there would be a fundamental difference between somebody being denied service based on their race than based on, let's say, their biological sex, at least in this case. When, when human rights legislation was passed in Canada, uh, federally and by the province, and it was during the 1960s, and the idea of it at the time was that we should have laws against uh, bigotry, open racism, open sexism, that you know nobody should be allowed to post a sign uh, saying we don't serve blacks or we don't serve women or uh, you know our company does not hire women, our company does not hire blacks. Mm-hmm. And so it was very popular because people felt that, that bigotry was immoral. And so if you have a law against bigotry, that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the laws were generally popular but what's happened in in recent decades is you've got more and more conflicts between uh sexual orientation and religion uh like mm-hmm. in the united states you've got the 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 cake decorator cake baker uh saying look I'll gladly serve gay and lesbian clients but I'm not going to participate uh in a same sex wedding and make the cake because that's contrary to my religious conviction and U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the the baker in that case. Uh, in Canada, the courts would far more likely rule in favor of the uh, of the customer that was denied the cake. Mm-hmm. But that is a real conflict there uh, between somebody wanting, I think, legitimately to practice their religion and live out their faith um, versus uh, you know some of the demands. And so there's always lots of clashes between the LGBTQ and the religious freedom are continually in conflict. Hmm. And nine times out of 10, if not 19 times out of 20, the courts rule on the uh, LGBTQ side, even though they continue to insist, oh, there's no hierarchy of rights, there's no hierarchy of rights. Hmm. Well, the court rulings themselves prove otherwise. There is a hierarchy of rights. And is your... uh... Is your group of lawyers, uh, your your firm, are you guys, uh, is this broadly construed what you guys are, are trying to uh, argue against or, or make, uh, make known to the public or kind of set precedent that this is what's happening? These cases receive a lot of publicity, whether the Justice Center is involved or not. Uh, our arguments in the Yaniv case is that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is the supreme law of the land, which is superior, supreme over any law passed by any province or by the, the national parliament, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees a right to liberty and a right to security of the person. And one of our arguments is that uh, a, a woman, as part of her security of the person, should not be compelled by law to wax male genitalia. Yeah, and you know, hopefully the and the tribunal is required to at least consider that argument. I, I won't predict whether they will accept it or reject it, uh, but certainly the charter is the higher law, and it yeah. supersedes any human rights legislation. It just seems I don't want to make a slippery slope argument, or I want to bring it up in order to show that there's a lot of nuance in there. But it seems that in order for uh, society to allow the government of the society to 
invade more and more the rights of the individual, there seems to be have to be some trust within the society that the government is is acting on behalf of their best interests. But it's still it it seems like incrementally once you allow the government one step into your house and then you're just allowing them to dictate more and more of your behavior and to impose their, uh, whatever that governing body's prejudice upon you so that you have to act in according to their prejudice. We've got two conflicting ideas of, of human rights and two conflicting ideas of equality. And I think it's the same in the United States. There is a more traditional understanding of human rights, which is a classical liberal approach, which is that my my human rights fundamentally are about my right to be left alone by government. So I can practice my religion. I can say what I want to say. I can associate with whom I want to associate. I can own and enjoy the fruits of my labor by way of private property rights. So my human rights don't really conflict with other people's human rights. It's simply a right to be left alone by government. And that's also uh, the older idea of we're all equal uh, before the law, but there's not necessarily an equal outcome because some people are more talented, some people work harder, some people are smarter, uh, people make different choices, good choices, bad choices. And at the end of the day, uh, we're not all equal in terms of our uh, our appearance or how much money we make or all kinds of other factors. Mm-hmm. So the older idea was, you know, free people are not equal and equal people are not free. And I think mm-hmm. that still holds true today. Mm-hmm. But now the new notion of human rights is um, it, it's kind of a change to human ambitions, human demands, human entitlements. So, you know, I, I have a right to um, to be sold goods and services uh, and and nobody can turn me down or I I have a right. It's become an imposition on other people. Yeah. It's one thing for example, you take the example, gender identity, gender expression under the old idea of human rights, the classical liberal idea, every person has the freedom to dress up however they want. So if a man wants to, to call himself a woman, dress up as a woman, okay, that's your human right to dress up as you please. But the new human rights extends to, well, other people have to agree with your self-conception and have to affirm your own beliefs uh, that you really are a woman and other people have to treat you like a woman. And that's, that's a big leap away from the, uh, the, the traditional understanding of human rights. I just don't know. I don't understand how a government can facilitate that efficiently because is it not my right to, uh, to see people as I see them? just as much and, and to treat somebody how I want to treat them and how are they going to go around and force me to perceive somebody as they want to be perceived. And yet I can't uh, be perceived the way I want to be perceived, which is able to perceive them as I perceive them. See, I just don't understand how it's possible for a government, unless it has infinite power and, and intelligence to be able to sift through uh, all these different human interactions and impose balance on everyone interaction without bias. And it seems like what you're saying is that Canada, Canadian law does have a bias and it's a bias in favor of, I guess, uh, certain groups, certain disadvantaged groups, because that that's the notion of justice is the correction of past wrongs or balancing power in a but, different direction. I mean, that's, that's part of it. There is uh, one human rights complaint, um, I'm familiar with where 
somebody complained to a human rights commission about the lyrics of a song. There was a song on the radio and the refrain was kill the Christian. And it was just over and over. It was part of the song, kill the Christian, kill the Christian, kill the Christian. And uh, in some of the provinces, the human rights legislation applies to speech, like a, a letter to the editor or what you say. Other provinces, it's only uh, services, which I think is a, is a better model if you're going to have these kinds of laws. Uh, but the human rights tribunal said, oh, well, we live in a free country. We have free expression. Suck it up. That's just too bad. That's just some artist. You know, it's not a literal incitement to killing Christians. It's just one songwriter that, that wants to express himself this way. And if you find it offensive, that's just too bad. And then uh, somebody took these liberal, uh, took these lyrics and replaced kill the Christian with kill the homosexual and yeah. printed the lyrics on a, on a piece of paper and distributed that. And uh, there's human rights complaint followed and said, Oh no, 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 that's promoting hatred uh, against gay people. And that's that's not poetry. That's just not that's not self-expression. That's just not allowed. So um, you do get into this, uh, you know, different victim groups, and there's definitely a hierarchy. It seems like there is some sort of underpinning psychology going on. Uh, almost, I, and I, I'm sorry for saying this, but it seems like the the Canadian the people who are running Canada are very Canadian, very polite. They're saying we can suck it up, but we need to protect the disadvantaged. So because we're Christian and we're white then it's our responsibility to allow people to hate us, but we need to stop other people from hating these other groups. Well, and here's where you get the the government uh, being not merely a referee, which is the classical liberal perspective on it, right? The uh, You have rules that apply equally to everybody, and the government will enforce the rules fairly uh, without regard to a person's race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. The, the new thinking is government kind of jumps into the game and starts to act as a player as well as a referee hmm. because the underlying ideology in the, uh, in the human rights laws and, and uh, in the tribunals and so on is this social justice warrior narrative of group oppression, hmm. uh, which is one that I, I reject. I accept that it's true. Like, for example, uh, you know, I accept that there is uh, real racism and real – sexism and and real islamophobia and real homophobia etc and these are social problems but there's a social justice narrative that elevates that to the idea that society consists of oppressors and the oppressed and we're continually in a state of war and the government has to help the oppressed and if that means trampling on fundamental freedoms of speech or religion of an individual, that's okay. It's it's all good for the cause mm-hmm. uh, because we have to achieve this equality. We have to end the oppression. And so then you get into this idea, if, if there really is such group warfare uh, between blacks and whites, gays and straights, men, men and women, uh, abled and disabled, etc., if, if our society consists of a chronic perpetual warfare amongst groups because of oppression, uh, then you get into a situation where the government jumps in and tramples on actual rights and freedoms mm-hmm. uh, that that we should be enjoying in a free society. Mm-hmm. And it erodes the trust that allowed people to vote in a government that was more and more invasive. So, so it seems like the government has been allowed to get closer and closer into how people behave and dictating how people behave. And that was allowed because of a trust between the citizens and the government. But now that trust is going to be violated 
and besmirched by the government trampling, showing itself to not be worthy of being invited into somebody's home or, or in somebody's head or in somebody's speech. So I well, just there... don't see it working out well in the end. Well, I think this is one of the reasons why the um, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, which is the taxpayer-funded uh, state broadcaster, they didn't even cover this case uh, until Friday, July 26th, when it had been in news around the world with with uh, Yaniv being on you know, radio interviews in Ireland and uh, American stations and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, because... Uh, the CBC very much has this social justice warrior narrative, and the the uh, it's a left wing attitude that society is in a in a state of continual group warfare, and government should help out the oppressed. And the the Yaniv case before the Human Rights Tribunal makes the whole Human Rights Tribunal process look bad, and a lot of people are saying, "Oh, wait a minute, this isn't the this isn't what we." wanted and 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 supported back in the 1960s yeah. when the idea was that this is going to prohibit some store owner from mm-hmm. putting up the sign saying you know we don't hire women or we, we don't serve blacks mm-hmm. it's departed from that and i think there was a it was a lot some it was a lot simpler in in the 60s where you had and you still have today you have this massive consensus that racism and sexism are immoral and so people will uh, quite willingly give up some of their freedom of association, right? Because technically, if you wanted to take a hardline libertarian approach, you'd say, well, you know, in a truly free society, you could put up a sign saying you don't serve blacks, you don't hire women. But most people would not go for that radical libertarian approach, but they would say, well, racism and sexism are immoral, so therefore we can legislate against that. But now, with uh, with the conflict between LGBTQ and religious freedom, and in the Yaniv case, a conflict between gender identity versus the safety and security of women to be able to practice a profession out of their own home without being legally required to have somebody with male genitalia in their house, uh, now people are shaking their heads. And it is bringing the human rights legislation into disrepute, for mm-hmm. sure. Is is disrepute the way toward getting it refined or or reassessed on a legal level? Is that what needs to happen, or can through this case and other cases can it be overturned from within? Well, a bit of both. I mean, the later this year, the Justice Center will be releasing some policy recommendations on reforming human rights legislation, uh, such that it can uh, get rid of some of the injustices. Uh, for example, the fact that somebody can file a frivolous complaint and force somebody else to pay tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills, and when the complaint is dismissed, they just walk away with it, and uh, they just walk away, and, yeah. and it's, it's cost them nothing at all. That's an example of something that could be addressed, uh, or a broader interpretation of reasonable exemptions from human rights legislation, uh, where, for example, you know, you could say, well, okay, maybe a, a waxing salon that is a business uh, that has a half dozen employees, uh, maybe human rights law is going to force them to deal with male and female clients, but we're going to exempt uh, female aestheticians working from home. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there there are ways to uh, to find good compromises, and I think that those will 
come about uh, because the status quo is just not, it's, it's untenable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you think that this is a uniquely Canadian story or, or the way that, that Canada has proceeded along these human rights legislation is uh, it's a part of uh, kind of the fabric of how you guys are wrestling with, with some sort of issue about uh, with your society and trying to uh, be, be progressive and doing it a little bit stronger than, than you think might be wise or, or something like that. Cause I know that Jordan Peterson kind of came into prominence because of the bill C 16, right. Which is a very, it seemed like that came from Canada and, and that kind of sounded a warning shot about these human rights things across the, the, the Western hemisphere. Yeah, Bill Bill C sixteen was uh, was passed by Parliament and it amended the federal human rights legislation to add gender identity and gender expression to the Canadian Human Rights Act. And the effect of that will be that if somebody wants a gender neutral pronoun used, and there are a small number of people who don't want he or she, but they want to be known as Zer or, or yeah. them or whatever. And that if you do not comply with that and use the preferred pronoun of the person, then you are breaking the law and you're subject to prosecution and penalty. And Jordan Peterson uh, argued, um, it might not have been his exact words, but this, this is totalitarian. When the government starts telling you what words to use, yeah. there's no other law. I mean, if, if you have a PhD, uh, out of politeness, I ought to refer to you as doctor, as a salutation. But even there, if I want to be r rude or, or just uh, inattentive and call you mister instead of doctor, mm -hmm. there's no penalties, right? But here with this human rights legislation, uh, you could actually get in trouble for misgendering somebody. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the state of the law right now. And, and uh, ironically, this was passed by 10 provinces without anybody batting an eye. And it was only at the, uh, at the federal level that, that Jordan Peterson uh, help to to uh, to bring it to national prom uh, prominence, in part because of what happened to him at the University of Toronto, where his employer told him, "You must, uh, you know, here's our policy, and you have to use these gender-neutral pronouns." And he said, "No, I will not do so," mm -hmm. and that catapulted him from, uh, I guess, obscurity into uh, international fame. And it, it seems like this, uh, the Yaniv case is related to Bill 16. I don't know if legally it is, but it is still working out the same sort of attitude or the same extension of the law into what is known as uh, self-ID or gender identification. Um, and it seems like there's something fundamentally different about gender identification as opposed to race. But at the same time, I don't know if there's much difference between religion and gender identification as far as the law can... The Yaniv case is it's definitely the same thing, but it's a more extreme version. So now you have, if Yaniv is successful, you have a situation of, of the state, the government, compelling you to wax male genitalia if you want to work as an aesthetician. And that, I think, is obvious. It's, it's, it's worse or it's certainly more shocking than the state threatening you with penalties for refusing to use somebody's desired pronoun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it's, a, it's a more extreme uh, form of it. So what are you hoping, or what is, I don't know if this is a proper question, what are you guys hoping to achieve other than a win? Is there a way to build on this 
uh, because we'll get the the announcement. Sorry, the, the answer, the technical, the ruling, term, yeah, the, the ruling, ruling, the judgment in, yeah. in a month or two months or so, right? Um, we expect it by October, within the next three months, but it, you know, it could be earlier. But by October, we're we're expecting it. And so, if could you run through the scenario of if it goes one way or the other, and what you guys are hoping to achieve, or what needs to happen, depending on what happens with this? Well, certainly, it's it's quite likely that uh, certainly on our side, it's it's high, it's highly likely if Yaniv wins before the Human Rights Tribunal, then if we receive the instructions from our clients, we would appeal that to the um, Supreme Court of British Columbia, and after that, it could be appealed to the. British Columbia Court of Appeal, and after that, the Supreme Court of Canada. So there's three levels of courts uh, above the, the the Human Rights uh, Tribunal, and and possibly only Yaniv would know this. But if if Yaniv is unsuccessful, then Yaniv might uh, he Yaniv does have the right to appeal this to the BC Supreme Court. So this ruling is not likely to be the end of the story, and I think the tribunal knows that. I think they're I think the tribunal will write a very thorough, considered decision, uh, knowing that it's likely to be appealed by the unsuccessful side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, what do you think? What do you think is the takeaway from this, other than just the salaciousness of this one incident? Um, but it, it, do you think that it's showing a, a problem in Canadian law or a problem in the social justice? Uh, the, the advancement of the law by means of social justice into a, a different form of liberty, um, and how do we how do we how do we delineate that very clearly to the public so that they understand what is happening? For, for me, the takeaway is that we we will continue to have these kinds of cases and claims that most people would consider to be outrageous and unreasonable and unfair and unjust, we'll continue to see this over and over and over again until we recognize that you cannot have both a law based on a classical liberal understanding of respect for individual freedoms of speech, religion, association, the right of parents to raise their own children as they deem best, uh, private property rights, and so on, you, you cannot have both this classical liberal basis for our laws and also adopt the social justice warrior narrative that uh, society is all about this permanent state of conflict between oppressors and oppressed people and that it's the government's role to trample on individual freedoms in order to help out the allegedly oppressed group there that's like asking for cool sunshine or dry water hmm. uh or efficient government i mean it's just it's inherently contradictory hmm. and uh until people recognize that you can't have both you've got to have laws that are based on a classical liberal understanding in which case you're not going to have any of these claims uh or not not these ludicrous outrageous unjust claims where somebody with male genitalia demands that the law compel unwilling women to to wax the male genitalia, you're going to keep on getting these kinds of claims as long as you, uh, to the extent that you buy into this social justice, this neo-Marxist oppression narrative that the government's role is to help the oppressed group to vanquish and, and beat and triumph over 
the mm. alleged oppressors. So there, it seems like there's a difference between the government protecting people from slander, from, uh, from aggression, uh, from even certain forms of disrespect. Um, that's one thing. And then it's one thing to protect a class. It's another thing to uh, be the strong arm of that class, to force other people to, to, to bow to the whims of that class. If the class can construe certain forms of speech as hate speech in the eyes of the law, then they basically get to control what society says and therefore what it can think, which is very, as you say earlier, totalitarian. Well, this is a frightening trend in Canada, but and I've seen it. I don't pretend to be super familiar with the U.S., but I've traveled to your country many, many times, and I know a lot of uh, American lawyers and, and leaders of some of the American legal groups that are uh, fighting for um, you know fundamental freedoms in the U.S. But this is a problem in, in the United States as well, where certain opinion gets denounced as hateful. And immediately thereafter, the next thing is no platform for hate. I mean, surely you you don't agree with giving a platform to hate, do you? And it's it's clever, superficially it's clever, but when you think about it a bit deeper, uh, who gets to decide what is hate? Mm-hmm. And that's something these people don't spell. Well, you know, they they will say, well, it's obvious. Well, actually, it's not obvious at all what what is or is not hate. Hate is very very object subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I could listen to the same speech or read the same newspaper column, or pick up the same tract or flyer, and you could read it and say that's hateful, and I could read it and say, no, it's not hateful. It's it's a, just an opinion. It's expressed in a very strident manner, but I don't Mm -hmm. see any hate there, or vice versa, you could find it hateful and me not. So hate is very subjective, but if it's, it's attractive sounding, well, let's, let's ban hate speech, but practically we don't know what hate is because it's very subjective. Mm -hmm. And if, and what happened, what happens effectively, if you say, okay, we're going to outlaw hate speech, then immediately you're going to see more and more people saying, well, that's hateful. He shouldn't Mm -hmm. be allowed to say that. Mm -hmm. And then you got the government saddled with, with uh, this, yeah. this, this huge impossible responsibility of monitoring all the speech and mm-hmm. going through it case by case and say, well, this is hateful, this is not hateful, this is hateful, this is not hateful. And even there, the government can't do a better job than what the citizens can because the government has no special, in my opinion, the government can't do a better job because it's made out of people. And these people, like everybody else, have their own subjective mm-hmm. feelings about what, what is or is not hateful. Yeah. So this yeah. is a big this is a big issue where you know speech gets denounced as racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, or just generally hateful. Yeah, it's and then it, the next step is no platform for hate. We're going to silence that person and not listen to what that person has to say. Yeah, it 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 just it doesn't seem like a good idea to legislate interpretation. Interpretation is you you use the word subjective, but I would just say it's so complex. And contextual that that from one person to another, from one angle to another, from one eye to another, it's going to look different. And to to allow a governing body like this mechanism built out of other speech that's constantly, even itself, the law is constantly being reinterpreted, constantly. So it's not like interpretation can ever be judged. Finally, there's always something that's that's going to be added or thought of next. It just it seems impossible and egregious and it it will it will incentivize abuse and and end up harming the society as a whole and then making forcing the government to to fall into decay itself because i don't think a society can function even economically 
once you start to insert the government into into how information flows from one body to another. That may well have been a contributor to the fall of the Soviet Empire in uh, 1989, 1991, in, in that era, because the state was exp- uh, was uh, spending a lot of resources on regulating speech and enforcing speech. And a police state is, is very expensive. I mean, if a government's going to start monitoring and regulating uh, what people say and mm. with whom people associate, that sort of thing, that takes a lot of uh, resources. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, apart apart from creating a very unpleasant place in which to live, <laughs> <Yes>. where <laughs> you have to look over your shoulder, shoulder all the time. Um, there's a case in East Germany that was interesting where some, uh, I don't know if it's five years, 10 years, 15 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, they opened up the uh, Stasi records. The records of the secret police were opened up to uh, to the public. People could go and see what kinds of files were were held on them. And there was a, a wife who discovered that her own husband was a secret police informer on her, you know, and that's, it's sad, uh, but, you know, that's the kind of society that mm. we will definitely head into if this political correctness and, and the social justice warrior narrative mm. and this neo-Marxist ideology, if that's not checked, yeah. that's exactly the kind of uh, society that we're going to end up with. In 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 one case or in one interpretation of this particular case it's kind of uh yaniv could possibly be thought of as a hero for the libertarian values insofar as he he's made such an egregious case that it's it's impossible to look away from it's very difficult to suppress this story so even the cbc who doesn't want to touch it because it goes against their narrative they have to tell this story that shows the the underbelly of their narrative so in in a way He's being like a virtuous hacker, even though I'm not justifying his behavior at all. Um, and if you if you want to talk about hate speech, just go watch and what he says about other races. It, it's very obvious he he's got some racial hatred going on. So it's it's he's the worst person to throw the first stone, but he's thrown such a stone that could possibly lead to that glass house collapsing just a bit. There's absolutely there's a silver lining on the cloud in so far as the Yaniv case exposes what's wrong with the social justice warrior narrative, and it's a good opportunity to educate people about the fact that you you've got an inherent irreconcilable conflict between a classical liberal understanding of the free society and the postmodernist neo-Marxist social justice warrior narrative that understanding of the free society and where the, where the human rights laws uh, kind of try to walk the fence uh, between those two irreconcilable views. And it hmm. does, it has worked reasonably well up to a point. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, I think the vast majority of the Canadian public supports laws that, which even though they, they clearly violate freedom of expression and freedom of association, but the, the laws that say that the business owner can't say, uh, I, don't, I don't serve Jews or I'm not going to hire blacks, mm-hmm. people accept that infringement of freedom of association, freedom of contract, economic freedom, freedom of speech. Right? Those are clearly violated by the human rights laws, and people accept that up to that point. Mm-hmm. What's happened in Canada, and I believe is also happening in the U.S., is that the the social justice warrior narrative, that that postmodernist neo-Marxist narrative of class warfare, has expanded further, and now I think the majority of Canadians 
look at this and go, okay, wait a minute, there, there's something wrong here. Uh, but the the fights will continue yeah. um, to the extent that that there's there is that inherent tension between two very different conceptions of society, mm-hmm. and and laws reflect laws always reflect a particular conception of society, yeah. right? Regardless of what it m- might be, and uh, so there's classical laws on a classical liberal model are going to be different from laws on a social justice warrior mm-hmm. uh, narrative. Well, thanks so much for your time, John. Thanks for yours. There's so many jobs that that they can do. And by they, I mean people that um, are immigrants, people that are um, may have low low de- or like de- developmental disabilities. People the, the, waxing is not the only job for these people. Right. You no, know, they they decided, hey, I'm going to put myself into this position. I can name probably a hundred different positions right now that they can go into that they're fully capable of doing. Well, For example, being a taxi driver, janitorial, working right. in a kitchen. 7-Eleven. 7 <laughs> <laughs>